This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and on this week's episode, we're going to feature a whole bunch of amazing interviews from the Toronto Screenwriting Conference, uh, conducted by Sierra Nutkovich. Now, unfortunately, I had previously recorded this episode with Sierra, and we talked about the TSC, and she gave a ton of insightful information. Unfortunately, I hate my computer, and it didn't actually record the episodes. So... Instead, uh, still going to play the ep- these interviews, and they're really great. It's just a shame we won't have Sierra's commentary to provide some extra information. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to talk about the first one. Uh, we have Christina Jennings, who is the chairman and CEO of Shaftesbury. Now, Christina spoke on the U.S. Producers panel at the Screenwriting Conference, and she provides uh, a whole bunch of really great information about following your dreams and and what it takes to actually plunge into the industry and and a whole bunch of things like that. Um, She gives a really great story of how she really got involved in it. So without further ado, let's listen. This is Sierra Nutkovich for ContraZoom. I'm here with Christina Jennings. Hey. Hey. How are you doing today? Well, thank you. Great. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you a little about what you do. Okay. Well, I'm the CEO of Shaftesbury, mm-hmm. and it is a content company. We make uh, film and television and digital content, scripted content primarily. Uh, we've been in business about 30 years. Um, our offices are down here in downtown Toronto on Logan Avenue. Um, and as I say, I run the company. I started it, and uh, I love what I do. I- that's wonderful. That I mean, how many people can really say that? Yeah, no, I, I, I was just telling a, a group of, of young writers that uh, I feel every day blessed that I found this industry because I do really love what I do. I love working with creative people. I like making things happen, you know, from an idea right through to the end. I like that. So uh, I feel very fortunate. What made you uh, decide to start your own uh, content creating company? Um, I owned a restaurant back in the 80s, and uh, I kept meeting all these people who come into the restaurant and have a drink before dinner, or, and they were like directors and writers and people who were so wa- wanting to tell their stories and were so passionate about them. And I was sort of between careers, and I, I just I decided to help one guy who had some money and he wanted to make a feature film. And I said, okay, I don't really know anything about what you do, but I love the creative world. And I, I ended up sort of co-producing the film from Helped Him Get It Made. And I began these friendships that then carried on. And and so that was, you know, that's over 30 years ago. And as I say, I just, I realized that I fell into it. You know, it was just luck in a way. If I hadn't met all those people, you know, perhaps it wouldn't have taken my life in that direction, but I did. And as I say, I'm so grateful. What was it about that one project that you were just, I, I need to help make this? It was a young man who had who'd done really well in the commercials business, you know, making TV commercials, and he'd set aside money. And instead of buying a house and doing all those things that he could have done, he wanted, he had written a thriller 
set in Muskoka, and he wanted to, he, so he'd written it, and he also wanted to direct it, but he'd never done anything like it. Like, he was a, he was a commercials director, and I just, there was something about this guy who was so determined and so passionate and clearly needed some help. I mean, I was a bit more of a businesswoman. I'd, I'd, I'd set up a couple of businesses before, and I say I knew nothing about what was the film world at all, but I knew that I could. I knew how to manage people. I knew how to sell. So in the end, I said, "Okay, sure, I'm going to join you." And we went on this journey, and I learned so much. And probably the biggest thing I learned was what I didn't know. And so I made that film with him, and then spent the next three or four years doing any job I could get my hands on in the business. It didn't matter if it was a production assistant on something or in an editing suite or whatever it was, because I wanted to understand all of the business. And it was when I came through that, that I started having the confidence to actually want to tell my own stories, you know, like I'd heard this little story, you know, and I liked it. And I'd met this novelist who wanted to get into film and television. You know what I mean? And I I got the confidence to realize I could sell my own shows. And that's really, you know, how it all began. So it seems like the 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 key here the the thing that the all of these projects have in common is is a great passion for whatever it is that they're making. Uh, is there something that you're uh, you're really passionate and really excited to make now? You know what? I'm passionate. I, it, I, you know, I was on the I was on a panel yesterday uh, here at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference, and I was with three American producers. And ultimately, what you realize is, as a producer. Um, everything you take on really is a passion project. So if there is the latest passion project, um, I'm a, I'm a real history. Personally, I love history and, um, I love it. I grew up with a father who loved it and in, I suppose instilled in us a love of history. And so, you know, I make a show called Murdoch Mysteries, which has really been an opportunity over now 13 or 14 years, uh, every week to tell great stories set at the turn of the century in Toronto. And um, we've just got greenlit a new series, which is set in the 20s in Toronto. And the 20s in Toronto, if you do the reading, was a fascinating time in Toronto's history. Um, it was right after the First World War. Um, women had left the home during the First World War to actually start to work in big numbers because the men had gone off to war. So women were changing their dynamic in society in a pretty big way. So in the 20s, when men were coming back from war, women weren't really very happy to just go back to the home, many women. They actually liked working. They liked being independent women. So that was one thing going on. In the 20s, 1921, Toronto was truly in a building boom. There were sky, there was construction everywhere. It was literally the cusp of this, this explosion, an explosion in immigration. Um, and, and I found all that really interesting. There was also a little undercurrent of racism going on, just to say. So it was a, it was a city in the middle of great change. Um, and so we've, we've pitched this and has been now greenlit, as they say, for CBC, a new primetime series with two women, uh, a, a white woman and a black woman solving crime in the twenties. And, and I'm really, you know, it just for me again, it touches on, on, on my love of history. It touches on, there was interesting when we decided to push this series now. 
how much it actually resonated with what's going on in 2017. There was an awful lot in the world. I don't mean just in Canada. So, um, so pretty passionate about that right now. So it seems like two really common themes in the projects that you're excited about are Canadian content, specifically local Toronto work, as well as marginalized, giving voice to marginalized voices. Uh, it, can you speak to why that is? Why that's a passion for you? I don't know. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I wasn't born in Canada. I've lived here pretty much my whole life. I am the, I am a proud Canadian. And one of the things about our company, um, we've been in business now, as they say, pretty much 30 years. We have adapted so much Canadian literature. Um, you know, plays and novels. I mean, and Margaret Atwood, Carol Shields, Mordecai Richler. You know, I can go on and on. You know, Murdoch Mysteries is based on Maureen Jennings' novels. You know, we did a great kids series from Roy McGregor's novels. I mean, it just goes on. And we still have, you know, we have in development Anne-Marie McDonald's Fall on Your Knees, which I'm I'm very excited about. So I've I've always seen a way as a filmed, you know, in, in effect, I am I, I am a filmed entertainer. I use the, that medium of either film or television or now the world of the web, web series. Um, but you're always looking for great material and, and and sometimes it's original ideas, but very often it's just a great book. It's a great play. And, um, you know, I, I really feel so fortunate that we've pretty much shot everywhere in Canada. You know, we've shot in Newfoundland a bunch of times. We've been in Manitoba a bunch of times. We've shot lots in Saskatchewan. I've shot up in Nunavut. We've shot in Dawson City. Like, I again, I'm a very proud Canadian, and I believe that... It's not that I have a responsibility, but I have, I have this platform that I've created now where I can use entertainment as a way to tell stories that maybe, just maybe, might affect a bit of change or dialogue, you know. So, you know, Murdoch and now our new series can talk about history. Um, but we can use other, you know, other shows that we're doing that can profile other parts of Canada or, or issues, you know. We've got a web series, a very popular web series right now called Carmilla, you know, which is a, a original uh, vampire novella, the first ever written by uh, Sheridan Le Fanu. Well, actually, it was a sort of a cautionary tale about, you know, written in the eight, in 1870, really a cautionary tale to tell, to tell men, don't let your women get too close together because <laughs> they might become lesbians. Oh, no. So, you know, so again, and, you know, we've, we've now through Carmilla, you know, uh, really tapped into that, that market and, and giving voice to that market and making, you know, so I, I think, you know, it, it, it just comes, you know, it comes from loving what we do, passionate of what we do, partnerships with other creators, you know, writers, directors, actors, you know, to tell their stories. And if we can all come together, it can be that much better. So, um, yeah. I ha- we haven't really had to go outside of Canada very much. We haven't at, at really at all to be able to find these stories. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just such like a, an eloquent, beautiful answer oh, that oh. it's a, it's hard Thank to you. even uh, like pick one an avenue to go down. I mean, uh, so Carmilla is a is a wonderful web series, and you're, you're getting uh, a movie's in production now. Yes, I we're gonna we're gonna start shooting in May a feature film. Yeah. Um, so Carmilla has a, a mostly female production team behind it. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, how do you, how important do you think it is to have female voices behind the camera telling the, the female stories in front of the camera? 
it's it's everything you know i mean in years ago we did uh we adapted eight of margaret atwood's short stories and then the next year we did six of carol shields's short stories and all of them were directed by women um every single one of them and and i think that um you know it's this whole you know we need to reflect back our world, both on the, on screen. You know, our world is a diverse world. You know, it's 50% women pretty much. And there is diversity in our world and especially Canada, which is such a diversified country. You know, and people have to be able to watch television or features or digital content and see themselves reflected back. So that's the on-screen side of it. The behind-the-camera side of it is, you know, a, a, a woman writer, a woman director is going to tell that story a little differently than a man. Not that a man can't tell a female story at all. Of course they can. But I know that that point of view that just is just going to be that much different. And an Asian person is going to tell that story differently. Do you know? A bl- it's a bl- so I think it is. It's it's essential actually that the voices behind the camera, um, you know, be as varied as they are on screen. And 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 so much, and which is why I'm so excited about the the world of web really. Because there's so much riding on primetime television. They are very expensive to make. There's a lot of scrutiny. And it's a very hard place to break in. It's hard to break in a new director or a new writer. Seriously, it's it's not easy. You can do that in the web world. And people can prove themselves and then move up. Um, so I think that um, there have been a lot of new programs coming out in the last year or two. And I'm super behind those programs, you know, making sure that... That we mentor young women, people of diversity, you know, uh, writers, directors, acting uh, talent. Um, and I think, you know, in the next couple of years, we won't be talking about this. It will just be the way it is, as Justin Trudeau, you know, as Justin Trudeau said, you know, you know, 50% of Can- Canadians are women. Why shouldn't his cabinet be the same in, in really any industry? And I think that, uh, so for the film and television industry right now, it's our time to prove that. And, uh, and it's great to see companies stepping up so you um you, <clears throat> pardon me so you spoke about uh web content and carmilla which is a, a, the web series that you mentioned that was at the forefront of web content before anyone was really doing uh, uh web series the way they are now with the, we've had like this explosion what was that initial decision to bring carmilla into your company and help it along at, because no one was really doing that well, interestingly, actually, Carmilla was, we probably started making web series back in, well, 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we were doing this oh, companion. YouTube. Yeah, no, no, it was, we were right on the, right on the beginnings of the World Wide Web and YouTube, <laughs> honestly. And we were doing them as companion pieces to our television series. And so I suppose I had a thought that, you know, for example, we did a show called Regenesis, which was set in the world of, it was a science drama. And, uh, and it was based on fact, but it was very much fiction and as say a drama series. I knew that no, I didn't know. I thought that every once in a while there would be an episode that a viewer might want to learn more about whatever was in the episode. So we created a, a web series that went alongside. We did that then with the kids series. So we, 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 we've sort of done it. We were, you know, we shot a, um, a web series called Backpackers that we actually shot in all over Europe. Um, but what, what is, makes Carmilla different? 
is that right now the television advertising brand world is going through this massive change. Uh, it's being disrupted and brands are trying to figure out how to find their place. So the old brand funding a 30 second spot, you know, uh, those are, those are there. That's okay. Except millennials often are cutting cords. So, um, uh, what was interesting about Carmilla was it was a hundred percent financed by Kimberly Clark. And there's no products in it. We didn't tell, it wasn't brought to you by Kimberly Clark. But what we, so the Carmilla content very much aligns with the brand attributes for Kimberly Clark for the You by Kotex. Um, brand. And so they, I give them credit. You know, they've done three seasons of Carmilla. It is because of them that we have such a hugely popular web series around the world, um, on YouTube. Um, so that has began, that started about three years ago. And since then, now we've done other scripted series funded by brands. So that's this new movement now in our company, uh, to bring brand funding into scripted content. Uh, I, I think that's fascinating because, uh, Right now, there's just such a um, uh, a pushback on on ad supported content because it's not worth as much as on the internet, and it's not where uh, millennials uh, and really just anyone who's spending a huge amount of time online are finding ways to block ads. They don't. Yeah. They don't. They just don't work. Yeah. So I, I like to have that kind of foresight to go ahead and see that 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 this is a better way of doing that. I think that's. Uh, Incredible. Do you have plans for further web series oh, yeah. along those, that yeah. same model? Yeah, no, we started a company three years ago called Shift2, uh, and that company is about finding brands brave enough to want to go on what is, you know, it's, it's sort of back to the way television started back in the, in the fifties, but it is saying to brands, you know, we can make scripted content that your audience, your consumers will like. Um, but, but, but these, of course, ultimately, you know, even a 30 second spot on television is about selling something. You're selling something. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, you know, you've got to be able to create that content that actually gets Millennials who might otherwise um, not have seen the advertisement on television that goes, oh, Kimberly Clark did that. Gee, and they didn't try and sell me something. You know what? I like Kimberly Clark. And then ultimately become loyal to Kimberly Clark, go out and buy their products that way. So it's it's coming at it through the back door. So, um, you know, we've got a... Um, a brand new project where we're going to be announcing with a very big brand, uh, because I think what, what advertisers are realizing is millennials, that 16 to 30, uh, group, um, who aren't watching television. How do we get to them? How do we, you know, so we're saying, well, let's take all the things we've learned in scripted television and just move it to the web. Um, so yeah, you'll, you'll start to hear a bunch of new shows coming from us with, uh, with brand funding. Great. Um, Last question, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, so what was your favorite movie that you saw this year? I loved Lion. Really? What was I it about Lion? Lion. I, I, it was such, um, it was based obviously on a, on a true story. And I just was so, um, this young man who, you know, is clearly adopted in, into this Australian family, this young East Indian man who wants to 
who's trying desperately to figure out what happened. And because we, the audience, sort of are ahead of him and because we've seen the story in the past, you know, I, anyway, I found it heartbreaking um, and so real. And the little boy was extraordinary. Dev Patel was amazing. So I just, I really, really love that. On the television side, just if you were going to go there, Absolutely. I have just finished watching Big Little Lies, the HBO series, and oh my gosh, that is some of the best television I've ever seen, all directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, written yeah. by David Kelly. All Pretty much, it is a very female series. Um, I just thought it was some of the best writing and directing and acting I'd seen in a really, really long time. I was anyway blown away by it. What I love about both those stories, both those stories is that they're very small and personal, but they feel so big as you're watching them and you, you get so invested in this yeah. one person's life and to, and particularly with Lion where it's true. I mean, that pro- that might stem a little from you, you love historical yeah. dramas and, and history itself. I, yeah, I mean, I, no, well, that's again, you know, at the end of the day, when you're making scripted content, what you realize is people are coming back every week to watch your show. Say it's a television series. And it's because of the characters. They don't really remember what that A story was, you know, if it's a procedural. You know, if we, we came back to Goodwit, Good Wife week after week, we came back because of those characters, you know. So ultimately, I think if you find something that audiences fall in love with character, then you've got them. You've got them. And, and I think one of the things about YouTube right now, and I think it goes in a way, uh, to scripted content is its authenticity. You know, YouTube has really said to the world, um, these young YouTube people, it's authenticity. I, I am who I am. I am authentically me. This is who I am. This is not, you know, and I think again on the scripted side, even though it's fiction, that it feels real, that it feels believable, you know, that these are characters they say are really compelling. Um, you will have, you will have, you know, you will have a success on your hands. Thank you so much for speaking oh, with me. That was my, my pleasure. beautifully well put. And oh, I, I think that you. I and definitely our listeners have learned a lot from you. Okay. Well, my pleasure. Have a good Sunday. Now, in case you're wondering what the Toronto Screenwriting Conference is, for the past few years, we at ContraZoom and Live and Limbo have been covering this. It is an excellent gathering where industry professionals, so screenwriters, producers, directors, things like that, come and speak to an audience that is more of a high-level sort of atmosphere. Um, it's not your basic screenwriting run one how to create a character or write a three-act structure. This is how to take your work to the next level, what you need to to get over that hump in the first place. So a lot of the speakers that come really know their stuff. They may not be the biggest household names, although there are some really big household names. Like this year, there was Paul Haggis, who's an Oscar winner, and Adam Reed, who's the creator of Archer. But most of the time, these are good, hardworking writers, teachers, script doctors, executives that you never really know who they are that are here to really show share their wisdom. So it's really great to be able to catch all of these. The next interview we're going to listen to is from Michelle Daly, who is actually uh, a CBC executive in charge of comedy. She knows a great deal about the Canadian entertainment scene and also what it really takes to work in this industry as far as what she is looking for and other uh, networks are indeed looking for. So let's listen to what Michelle Daly has to say 
about comedy writing. This is Sierra with ContraZoom. Hi, how are you today? I'm well, thanks. I'm Michelle Daly, and I'm the Senior Director of Comedy Content at CBC. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on our show. I'm happy to be here. All right. So first things first, uh, I just want to like list off the things that you have overseen as a, uh, sorry, what's your credit considered? It's I'm senior director. So like head of comedy mm-hmm. at CBC. Excellent. And so you are in charge of things like, uh, Schitt's Creek. I don't know if I can say that on the air. It's with the <laughs> SCH, two yeah. T's. Yes. It's a real name. Yeah. It's a real last name. This hour has 22 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, working moms most recently. Yes. So uh, it seems like Canadian content is a passion for you. Absolutely. I, um, comedy, Canadian comedy content is a big passion for me. And um, it's it, it wasn't something that I started off uh, when I started my career that I thought I would end up as a comedy person. Um, but it's where I've ended up. And I'm really, really happy. It's great. I love the comedy industry and our community here across the country. It's fantastic. I mean, I mean, I think... I speak for many Canadian uh, aspiring writers that we're very thankful for for you and what you've done. Oh my goodness, it's a team. We have a fantastic <laughs> team at the CBC that allows uh, allows all of this great comedy to happen. What do you think is the difference between Canadian and American comedy? Oh, this is gonna get me in trouble. Um, well, I think there's a couple of different things. Uh, I think where we where we are similar in, is in that they they're kind of um, cable comedies are where we are. Like where our, our network kind of comedy is their premium cable kind of comedy. Um, and then there's the smart and sophisticated, um, really, really in-depth character work that goes in with that. Um, so it's, I, I don't want to say it's smarter, but I think, um, I think it is. And I, and, you know, I think that, but there's a place for, you know, um, a broader comedy as well. Um, but I think what our Canadian audiences, um, most relate to and, um, are what's really, really resonating with them are our strong, deep, you know, really, really well formed, um, mindful characters that, um, that are, that are really, you know, there's a, there's a level of sophistication, um, that, uh, writers in Canada, uh, can achieve comedically. And, um, I think they, you know, without that, then, then we're very similar. I think maybe the bar might be just so much higher for Canadian content because we, we don't manufacture it at the same rate that they do. That's true. We, I mean, for us, our, our focus is really on the writing at, at the development stage because mm-hmm. we don't do pilots. So, um, when you, when you focus on the writing and, and scripts, then, then you really, really, um, uh, kind of, dig deep into the world. Um, so you know what the world is that you've created, you know what the rules are and kind of within that structure and, you know, there's freedom, right? If you have rules, then you can on occasion go outside of the rules and be surprising. Um, but if people know what they're getting and, and know, um, what to expect week to week, um, I think that really, really helps. And, And then you get to surprise them by kind of going to a deeper, darker place sometimes or a more silly place. What does that mean that you don't uh, do pilots? Um, so, I mean, you know, the way that Americans kind of have pilot season where they do one episode and um, they shoot one episode. And then that, from that, they kind of base whether they're going to pick up the series. Uh, we don't do that. Uh, at CBC, we focus on scripts. So we focus on writing. Um, so we will um, have more scripts rather than go do, you know, go into production on an episode. 
So what do you look for in a script that makes it you want to, not want to, but like need, need to make to. it? What makes it mean need to do it? <laughs> um, well, I want it to be really funny. Um, I want it to have a point of view. I want it to, to really say something, um, and, and kind of be a little bit unexpected in terms of, um, a world that we haven't seen before, or, um, it can be familiar too. Like, you know, uh, it's been a long time since we've had, you know, a real, um, raw, uh, you know, female focused, comedy like working moms it's that's just so honest and and i think that's that's the kind of thing that we're looking for that kind of authenticity of voice um you know so when when people are pitching and wanting to um wanting us to consider their products it's like why are you the one to tell the story why are you the unique soul voice that needs to tell the story you know what is it about you then your connection to this material that because that's what sets it apart right the, to have that um, real authentic voice that um, really kind of brings forward a unique point of view, and I and I feel like comedy when it works best, it has a unique point of view. It's trying to say something, um, so then you can you either you laugh at it or you know you connect with it and you relate to it, and I think that's that's um, also really important is the relatability. And that goes back to the characters again, you know, if you can relate to these characters, if you can connect with these characters, um, then you'll join them week after week or if you're binge watching episode after episode. Um, and, and then they can surprise you by choices that they make or, um, or not surprise you because they're doing what you want them to do, but then on occasion surprise you. Something that I really appreciate about the CBC comedies is that you have this diversity of voices this diversity of representation you have mm. actual women being funny and you have two you have Banner, baroness von sketch show and then you have working moms which are two female ensembles and uh it, it's about time yeah seriously oh my god <laughs> women are funny huh? yeah. <laughs> this is news to me what yeah. <laughs> i just think it's uh uh it's so interesting to see real people on television mm -hmm. and that you just don't get to see. I'm, I'm looking at actors and like, Oh, I can see myself in these people. Absolutely. I think, um, when you look at like three of our most recent comedies, Baroness von sketch, Kim's convenience and working moms, um, even though tonally they're all different, um, kind of the worlds that they inhabit uh, are different, but what they all have in common is that they're really relatable. You know, Baroness von Sketch is relatable to, you know, how many people have, you know, said that this is my life. How have you been, you know, stalking me with that's that's happened to me. Um, Kim's Convenience is a very relatable family. Um, it's relatable on an immigrant family level and on just a general family level. It's a, and then Working Moms is so relatable for, you know. I moms. recognize my mom. <laughs> yeah, you recognize, like, that's the thing. You don't have to be a mom to yeah. recognize, um. We all know moms. We right? all know moms. It could be your sister. It could be, you know, your cousin. Uh, it could be your wife. Um, you know, so it, so it's a real kind of relatable situation. And, and just reminding you that moms are also people and they have, you know, real regular, you know, they're not superhuman and they have real, um, difficult choices to make. Was there a conscious decision to push for diversity uh, in Kim's Convenience and having more women-focused uh, uh, shows? Or does um, it just happen that way? I think it's it's a combination of opportunities in terms of like what's what creative and what's in the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, women are kind of having this renaissance, uh, mm -hmm. you know, 
wage parity is really, really important um, across the board, not just in entertainment. Um, you know, women behind the scenes is just as important as women in front of the camera. And I just, it for, for me, I think it was just that these, like for those three shows that, you know, the two being women focused and one being um, diverse, it was just that they just came to us and there, it, it was, we did Kim's not because it's specifically Korean. Um, we did it because it's a really good family comedy that's super funny. Um, and they just happen to be Korean. Uh, anything specific, um, I, I think is so relatable to many other families. I mean, I'm not Korean and I, I, I think I've had verbatim some of those conversations with my parents, you know? So, um, so it's, it, it's not, it's, it's just about what kind of, you know, we're constantly looking for, um, creative that is uh that's different that pushes the boundaries that has something to say and um and and i think that it's an obligation for the world that we live in to reflect who we see every day i mean when i'm you know walking to work or if i'm on the subway i you know i don't just see one type of face you know so why wouldn't i expect that in our comedies you know across the board Thank you so much. No problem. I really appreciate, I mean, thank you for all that you do and thank you for speaking with me. No problem. It's been fun. This is actually the seventh year of the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. It's been going on and every year I think it's been absolutely fantastic. I've attended every year and full disclosure, I do volunteer and help out in ways that I can, but Sierra applied, got a media pass, covered it traditional way. It's all been good, uh, and we had a really great time. I unfortunately was only only able to go to day one, and I really wish I had Sierra here again to talk about all of her experiences and getting to go to all these really wonderful sessions. I know one of the highlights for her was the Beaverton panel where they – uh, read three different sketches and then did their actual writer's room meetings and broke it down, figured out how to make jokes better, how to flow it better, uh, how to just generally improve it, and also while keeping in mind things like budget constraints that they have. And one of the most interesting things that they talked about was that the people that they make fun of, because it is a satirical show, they punch up. They never punch down. And punching up is kind of a, a double meaning for them because punching up comedy scripts usually means making punchlines better and funnier and things like that. But also that the people that they choose to target and make fun of is people of power, people that, you know, should know better that they're insulting, uh, not making fun of someone because they're lesser than them or because it's an easy target, things like that. So it was really fascinating. I actually got to see that one. And I know that was one of Sierra's favorite uh, sessions of the entire weekend. So it was really nice to be able to talk about that a little bit. And I wish you would have been able to hear more of it. Um, That said, we have an excellent interview from Courtney Jane Walker. Now, Courtney is uh, a writer on Degrassi, the newest version of it, and she really gets to talk about writing for young women, writing for young people in general, and what that sort of means to her, uh, and be able to give a, a good outlet for people who are still growing and learning and what that means to her. This is Sierra Netkovich with ContraZoom, and I'm here with Courtney Jane Walker, a writer and producer on Degrassi Next Class and Next Generation. Hi. Hey. 
How you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So we're here at the Toronto Screenwriting Con- Conference, and I wanted to speak to you particularly about what is it like writing uh, a show that's that's mostly aimed at young teenage women. Uh, a gift and a joy. Um, writing for young people, especially young women. I mean, I didn't start writing thinking I wanted to write for youth or even young women, but I have truly fallen in love with it um, because there is... There's so many opportunities to tell stories that have never been told before and to tell them in ways that empower girls instead of telling them that they are not worth as much as boys or that their experience isn't as valuable. Um, and so whenever I tell any story on Degrassi, I just really try to focus on what I would have wanted to see when I was a teenager. What are stories that I didn't see and wanted to see? What are points of view that were never put on screen, whether it's uh, gender, sexuality, race? Like, who are people we can put on screen that are never on screen where young people can say, oh, that's me. That's my experience. What's an example of a storyline that was like your baby, that was something that you really desperately wanted to see and that you got to make happen? Um... Well, before, uh, prior to last season, our showrunner, Sarah Glinsky, said, um, I want you to think about some issues that you really want to talk about. What are some stories that you really want to tell? And uh, I came into the room and I said, I think we need to tell an, an abortion story. Uh, Degrassi had done a story about an abortion uh, way back in the day and it had been really controversial. And people, you know, like, you know, it hadn't aired in the States even. And it turns out that Sarah had been thinking the same thing. And so we uh, we went forward and we did a story about an abortion where a girl gets pregnant and she knows from the outset that this is the choice that she wants to make and she makes it and she doesn't regret it. And the story is more about that journey as opposed to what you see a lot of the time where it's like they regret it or they feel bad or it they are somehow punished for making that decision. And we just thought it was really, really important to put... Um, a version of an abortion on screen where it's an empowering decision. It's a difficult decision and it's an emotional decision, but it's not this feeling that she's going to be haunted by it. And so we, we felt that there are so many other versions of that story that are put out either where she doesn't get the abortion or where she's made to feel horrible for it or she feels horrible. So we thought let's, we, we, there needs to be an alternative narrative. Uh, there needs to be a version of this out there so young women who might find themselves in this position can say, look, there truly are options for my life that don't necessarily end in me being like karmically punished by the universe. And I, I, as, as a young woman, I think that it's very important for media, like media that uh, we consume to model that kind of behavior for mm-hmm. us. And I think that Degrassi, Degrassi does that in a very hyper real way. Yeah. And I, do you think that maybe that helps it helps to normalize it if we see it in this uh over the top kind of high school oh that that's makes it a little more real for our lives i think um uh the creator linda schuyler uh who's just uh, just an incredible force of nature um uh, when the show, uh, she often talks about when the show won a Peabody Award a few years ago, um, the citation said that the show neither trivializes nor sensationalizes issues. Mm-hmm. And whenever we're talking to her about what the core of the show is, that's always what she comes back to. And that's what we always hang on to is we get down to the reality of the experience. We get down to um, the difficulties, but we also want to 
We also always want to have hope. We want to have uh, an aspirational story. So in the end, it, often the stories end with peers helping each other through trouble. Because um, uh, we think it's also important to model uh, positive outcomes for young people because the, the world is a really hard place right now to be a young person. Um, and so if we can help young people navigate that a little bit, then I feel like uh, we will feel like we're doing something. Uh, how do you find that balance between a uh, t- like teaching a lesson and showing an authentic story? I don't think we never set out to teach the lesson. It's more that, um, and you know, and bad things happen to characters on our show all the time. You know, like people die, people get diseases because shit happens in real life. So that's going to happen on the show. But I think uh, what we try to do we don't, we try not to moralize on the actions of the characters, but we do offer them ways out. You know, we offer them a road to happiness or uh, closure even. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think that is the lesson more than anything, not that they're going to get punished or disciplined for having sex, doing drugs, but that if you make a bad decision, there's a way out. And, uh, and if, even if there isn't a way out, there are people who can help you. Right. Is there like a set of rules that you have or like a, a, the kinds of stories that are... No, no rules. Just if it happens to teenagers, we'll do it. And uh, a lot of crap happens to teenagers. And I would say that it's life is getting harder for teenagers. I don't think the internet has made it easier. Um, I mean, it's made our jobs easier because <laughs> there are lots of stories there. But we... Um, we don't have rules. No, it's just if it's if it's an authentic. Probably okay. The only rule is if it is an authentic thing that's happening in real teenagers' lives, then we'll tell that story. Because as soon as you get too far away from that, um, you lose what the core of the show is. You said you didn't set out to uh, to write you uh, television for youth. How did you come into that? I mean, honestly, it was just you know I was looking for a job, and my agent was like sent me out for an interview at Degrassi. But once, once I got there, I was like, this is, I belong here because, uh, the show has a real social justice bent and that's something that I'm very passionate about. And so it kind of has brought those two things that I am passionate about together, which is, you know, social justice and writing. And, um, the, I mean, and the other great thing about writing for young people is that they really care about their content in a very emotional gut way, as opposed to, you know, adults who, you know, they watch it and they're like, Oh, I don't know about the structure. And they get very detached. They get very, they can get very disengaged and clinical. But young people still feel so deeply about their TV. Those characters are real to them. And those things are happening are real. And, uh, to write for an audience that engages with the material like that is a gift. It is a real gift. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, thank you. Uh, are there any final thoughts you'd like to add? No. I mean, I'm good. I'm just here at the conference having a good time. Uh, you know, actually, I do have I do have one question. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. What got you into writing in the first place? Uh, I've always, always wanted to do it. I, I uh, For a long time, I thought I'd write books. But man, that's a lot of words. <laughs> All at once, and it, it's very lonely. And so, I mean, the the, the wonderful part about uh, TV writing is that for most of the day, you're just sitting around with a bunch of people who hopefully are your friends. And I'm lucky enough that on Degrassi, they just an amazing group of people, and they are my friends. And 
and you talk and you joke and you think about stories that mean something and then you get to write them. Uh, and it's fewer words in a book. <laughs> I think honestly, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Cause I think that the hardest thing, I mean, maybe, maybe my biggest problem when I write is to cut down my word count. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. I gotta like trim, kill those darlings. Yeah. Yeah. But then you, then you're left with the good stuff, right? I mean, in theory, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Sometimes you'll get speakers who really are able to hit that magic button in and help give the perfect advice. Sometimes the speakers will just sort of tell their life story and explain how they overcame obstacles and what they did to sort of get to the positions that they're at and recommendation that they can get there. It was interesting listening to Adam Reed talk, the creator of Archer and, uh, he didn't, he made it very clear that he didn't have a, a secret magic lesson that he could teach people. He kind of was in the right place at the right time, you know, did his work, worked hard at it. Um, and, and eventually was rewarded with all the success he had. Unfortunately for most people, it's not going to be like that. And he was very open and, and clear about that and said that he wished he had a, a, you know, a bit of a better answer to what people should work on other than, you know, Keep doing what you're doing. If you believe in it, don't make compromises, things like that. And I think there's a certain satisfaction you can get from knowing that you don't need to compromise yourself or change what you're trying to write about, the stories you're trying to tell. Um, and, and so that was really exciting to hear. Plus, he's just damn funny. Uh, we weren't able to get an interview with him, but that's okay because we still have a couple more really great interviews. Um, up next, we're going to listen to Allison Friedman, who is the Director of Development of Color Force. Uh, so once again, we're going to have Sierra show another amazing interview. This is Sierra Nutkovich. I'm here with ContraZoom, and I'm here with Allison Friedman. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, so can you describe what it is you do? Uh, sure. I'm uh, a film and television executive at a company called Color Force in Los Angeles. We make movies and TV shows. Um, most notably, we're known for the Hunger Games movies. And uh, most recently, we made The People vs. OJ with FX for television. Interesting. And uh, what was it about? Like, uh, Were you there during when they were... Um, the, 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 the Words and stuff and things. Mm -hmm. um, so what was it about the Hunger Games that uh, really drew... Uh, color force to it. You know, I came into the company after um, those movies had actually wrapped, but I know uh, Brian Unkelis, who used to work at the company, championed those books, and Nina really saw something in them that nobody else did, which was, if I'm remembering correctly, she saw them as is like a way to talk about the high school experience and what it feels like when you're in high school and a teenager and just like the weight of the world being on your shoulders and feeling like every day is life or death. Um, and that really being her way into it and obviously the political climate and everything, it's it's become even <laughs> more relevant. Um, but for her and for us, it's always about, you know, what are we trying to say with these movies and television shows? Like what, what's happening in the world right now that we want to comment upon? Um, and I think those movies do it so well where, Yes, they're book adaptations, and yes, it stars a teenage girl, but they're beloved by adults and children and men and women. It doesn't really matter. It's bigger than that. Um, so, I mean, that was part of what drew me to wanting to work at the company is just wanting to work at a place that was willing to take a risk on something so controversial and and yet um, so important to like the landscape of the world in terms of just changing people's opinions or inspiring people. Like that's to me. The, why I came into Hollywood 
as movies inspired me as a kid. Everything I ever wanted to do was because of a character in a movie or television show. Um, and kind of it, it shaped my view of the world. And so getting to work on things that could possibly have that effect on other people is, is like the most cool, rewarding thing for me. What was one of those formative movies for you? Oh gosh, it's going to embarrass myself. Um, weirdly spy game was a very, I, I couldn't tell you why I just could watch that movie a hundred times. I love it so much. And, and just anything with espionage, anything with mythology, anything with a conspiracy. I just love the idea that the world was bigger and more complicated and there was something happening. Um, you know, the matrix was a really big movie for me. Unbreakable was a really big movie for me. Heavyweights. I still rewatch on a regular basis. I, I just, I'm not even going to get into the, the beauty of heavyweights and how it's one of the greatest <laughs> movies of all time. Um, these formative experiences that we have as children, they really like shape our worldview. And mm-hmm. I just find that. I watched Robin Hood Men in Tights probably a thousand. <laughs> I could recite that movie. Uh, oh, please do. I would, <laughs> the rest of the podcast was just you reciting just, Men in Tights. I used to be able to recite to It Takes Two, the Olsen twins movie. <laughs> I know. I think the first line of that movie is hit me in, hit me in. Um, cause they're playing like, uh, baseball on a streak. Anyway, I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> That's okay. I know double, uh, it's a double, double. It's the, it's like, it's like Macbeth inspired. It's very strange for an Olsen twins movie. Oh, it was like double, double, double toil and trouble. I like, think so, but it, that seems too long to be a movie title. I kind of remember that they're Halloween movie. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Whatever that was. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you do is you, you find projects. Clueless you, too. I forgot. Clueless. Oh, That's oh a really God. important one. I agree that I think that might be the most important. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you, um, uh, you find projects and you basically lobby to get them made. Is that? I, I find projects and writers and filmmakers and lobby to get them made, lobby to get them hired. Um, you know, sometimes it's about a new piece of material and setting that up and believing in a story. And sometimes it's about believing in a creative vision uh that somebody has and just really pushing to get them onto a project that maybe we already have going and really have that point of view that's that I believe in what kind of oh, sorry what kind of point of view is it that you try try to champion ones that feel fresh and original uh or not even original just unique you know I think I've I've probably mentioned the movie get out six times this weekend but it's such a perfect example of a fresh perspective on a genre movie like there's nothing, you know, he didn't reinvent the wheel with that movie, but by just having a totally fresh set of eyes and seeing that kind of story through a different character, it suddenly felt totally new and totally, totally fresh. Um, I think we're always just looking for that new way in because, you know, you've seen a million movies that kind of feel and smell and sound the same. And I think right now with obviously all the push for diversity and more women and everything, I think the most important thing we're going to get out of that is is just a new perspective and some, some fresh eyes on maybe some tropes that we've gotten a little tired of. Uh, like, uh, can you give an example? Um, what's a good example? I mean, (laughs) I talked about that in the, I'm really sick of the trope of a complicated woman with a dark past has to be like absurdly sexual. Mm -hmm. That's a trope I've gotten a lot of is just like, chick picks up strange men at a bar and sleeps with them in order to find some solace in her life. Like I'm complicated woman. Most of my friends are complicated women. I don't know anyone who lives like that. I don't think I've ever met an uncomplicated woman. Right. But that's my point is the more women we get, we give the opportunities to write 
you know, complicated female characters, the more authentic they'll start becoming and the more relatable they'll start becoming. Um, and, you know, you, you fall into tropes and some of them are really helpful. You know, there's the stereotype of women that was, you know, the 90s rom-com girl who's like, she trips and she's adorable. And it's like, that's not <laughs> My me. My one character trait is that I'm clumsy. Yeah, exactly. But I'm so cute and bad with money. Like, that was just a thing. <laughs> Someone take care of me. Yeah. And then it kind of became, um, you know, the guy's girl who is like could drink beer and like you know it was like the amy schumer guy's girl or like the sloppy girl and it's like none of these girls really feel like me you know where i'm not the manic pixie dream girl i'm never going to be the manic pixie dream girl but i think just giving different kinds of people from different kinds of backgrounds opportunities to tell stories um to tell those stories through their perspectives you'll hopefully start getting some really fresh you know we're um, going to production on a movie next week called Crazy Rich Asians. And what's so refreshing about that is it's basically a rom-com, but it's an Asian rom-com and it's, it, it has so many culturally specific, oh, so many culturally specific things that make it feel so fresh and fun and unique, but it's not, you know, structurally anything we're not comfortable with. We've seen that structure before. It's just new characters, new eyes. Uh, can you tell us, uh, how, you got that uh, that project made what was a sure well i personally did not get that project oh, made sorry. um <laughs> yes but uh we you know um with uh an independent financier who has connections to asia f- optioned that book um a couple of this was before i started the company and found a writer um and then found another writer and got the script into good enough shape that we felt like we could attach a director and got really lucky getting John Chu, who is the perfect person to direct that movie. There's literally no one more perfect for it. And he had such a great vision for what he wanted the movie to be and uh, just really inspiring. Um, and so, you know, he's a big commercial filmmaker and suddenly people start seeing that this maybe has some commercial viability. And, uh, you know, they went around town and, and, sold it as a package uh with john and color force producing and uh warner brothers bought it and um you know the will hopefully i think it will be the first hollywood movie ever made with an all asian cast which is really exciting for us just to like be you know setting that bar but more than that it's just like a really fun movie i'm excited to see it uh what's it about um it's it's base. It's kind of a rom com. It's about a girl who's a uh, American born Chinese girl who's a professor at NYU who is dating this really handsome um, Singaporean man. She in New York and she doesn't know much about his family. And, you know, she's very American in her sensibilities. And he invites her uh, to Singapore with him for his best friend's wedding. And when they get to Singapore, she discovers uh, very quickly that he is essentially like the JFK Jr. of Singapore. His family <laughs> is the wealthiest family in Singapore and he is the most eligible bachelor. And so everybody wants to break them up and nobody thinks she's of the right status for him or good enough for him um, and too American for him. And so it becomes this, you know, she's sort of a fish out of water and all of these people are trying to destroy her uh, and destroy her relationship. Um, but, you know, I think that's classic. I mean, you, we've never seen anything like that, even slightly. It's, it's so hard to even find one Asian character, let alone, <laughs> let alone an entire cast. Yeah. And, you know, part of John Chu's pitch for it, which was so inspiring, was he wanted to break every stereotype anybody ever had over, you know, 
a Chinese person and completely create new ones. It's like, I want to create new stereotypes. And I thought that was such a, <laughs> such a fun thing to say because, um, that is what you end up doing, right? Like we break the stereotypes of what women are and we keep, it keeps evolving and evolving, evolving. And hopefully like it'll go away. Um, I think if we, uh, if we create, if, if we're able to create enough narratives in the voice of women, mm-hmm. in the voices of people of color, then eventually once like if it, if once you create stereotypes like that, it's a sign that you have enough stories together to have that stereotype. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing because you fall you've always you also fall into stereotypes sometimes when you're telling stories and it it's both lazy um and unavoidable, I think. Mm-hmm. Um like the grizzled bald white man with a checkered past. Yeah. Um but I always come back to the wire as like just the greatest characters ever on television, I think and you get such depth and nuance and layers. It's just like, I just point to that when I read something that's one dimensional, I'm like people can have more than they can be conflicting. Like I, I said this the other day, like I, I respect the show. This is us. I understand it has a lot of viewers, but you know, there's a overweight woman on that show and every scene she's in is just about the fact that she's overweight. And it's really frustrating to me because that's not what it is to be an overweight woman. You aren't 24 seven thinking about the fact that you're fat you know, you have a life, you have interest, you have things that make you happy. You know, you're not just bogged down every day by one thing. It's not, def- you aren't defined by one thing. No person is defined by one thing. Um, and so I'm always interested in finding characters that feel real because they're more than one thing. Is there a project that you are proud of, that you're very, very proud of that you got made? Oh, that I got made personally. No, I am not at a point in my career where I can say I got that made. Um, I can't wait till the day I can. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I'm really proud when I was at genre, I really championed the Martian and it was really cool to actually see a movie get made that, you know, I was there from the day we bought the book. Like that was, that was very cool. Uh, and very inspiring. And I learned so much from watching that happen. Um, and then, you know, seeing how hard it is to get things made, just doing some of this, you know, making that little AI short, like that was really rewarding and cool. And it's like, yeah, I actually, we made that and we sold that. Like we could, we could do it again. Um, just being empowered to actually feel like you can, you can make stuff is, is really, that's the fun part. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's great. Uh, I know one of Sierra's other favorite panels over the course of the weekend was the I Am, a discussion on the female gaze, which featured four women uh, speaking and then one more woman uh, moderating the panel, talking about their experiences, uh, not only just being a female writer in a male-dominated industry, but also uh, as far as how they feel the best way to write about women's issues and things like that, um, can be done. You know, the Toronto Screenwriting Conference always has some very topical panels. And this one was apparently really special. You had four women of different ethnicities, of different ages, with different backgrounds as far as writing actually goes from dramas to comedies and things like that, and and how they bring their experiences to the screen. And it was apparently very insightful. It featured Tracy G... Tracy Deer, Jennifer Holness, Robbie Hoffman, Courtney Jane Walker, who we heard from earlier. And then it was moderated by Katrina Seville. Um, and everything I heard about it was absolutely phenomenal. And I'm very disappointed that I did not get a chance to see this one. Um, 
but I am, I'm very proud that Toronto Screenwriting Conference still is willing to push boundaries and experiment with ways that it can connect with the audience because, you know, the, the writers of tomorrow are not just going to be who have been traditionally in the writers' rooms for the last, you know, 50 to 80 years. There's going to be new people with new and exciting stories to tell. And so it's great that uh, the female attendees, especially those with, with different backgrounds, can have someone that they can look up to and learn from. Now, we only have one more interview left, and that's with Corey Mandel. He is a playwright and a UCLA screenwriting professor. Uh, so he's going to talk about uh, a little bit about what's like watching a movie with a critical eye and uh, as just a regular moviegoer, something I think a lot of people who are deeply invested into film kind of struggle with. How do you turn off that intellectual side of your brain when you want to watch just a stupid comedy or things like that? So let's hear from Corey Mandel. Hi, welcome to ContraZoom. I'm here with Corey Mandel. Hello, and thanks for having me. No problem. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Ciara? I'm good. Uh, if you don't mind just introducing yourself, what, what, what do you do? Uh, well, I'm a uh, screenwriter, and I teach screenwriting and TV writing at UCLA, and I also teach it in private workshops. Great. And uh, what, what sort of classes do you teach at UCLA? Uh, I teach a range of uh, classes from TV pilot writing, feature film writing, uh, launching your career, a wide range of classes. And how did you fall into that? Um, I was a, I did my MFA at UCLA, and I was really fortunate to get hired while I was still in school to do Metropolis for Ridley Scott. I sold the pitch to Ridley Scott. And then Ridley, I was announced in the trades, uh, trade magazines that Metropolis was getting made. It actually ultimately didn't get made, but looked like it was going to get made. And uh, so UCLA asked if I'd be interested in coming in and teaching. And uh, I said, sure. And it was very surreal because I remember the first day I taught, I went into a classroom where like two years earlier I was taking a class and everyone's looking at me and I'm like, what are you looking at me for? So it was, it was kind of a strange experience. It's like you, you were, you, the student becomes the master. Kinda. Oh, not a master. I very much <laughs> felt like still a student. Can I ask you about uh, Metropolis? Because sure. I'm a bit of a film nerd. Is it based off of the original Metropolis? No, it's a great question. No, it's, it, it actually had a different title and it was Ridley who suggested Metropolis. And it, it thematically ties to that, but it didn't have anything to do with Fritz, the, the, the original Metropolis. Uh, thematically, how'd that tie in? It, that's a uh, that project. You're going back to ancient history, but it, it was a uh, it was actually um, a project about uh, the oppression of society. It was a project about an individual who lives in two different world, who exists in two different worlds, but lives in neither. Uh, it was a sort of a dark noir type project. Uh, really, it would have been amazing to see what Ridley had done with it. But um, so that's how it connected to that to that project. Right. Um, and as a, as a screenwriting teacher, what do you look for in a good script? Ah, um, I look for a really strong story engine. I look for, uh, compelling, authentic characters. Uh, I look for a relentless pursuit of conflict escalation that ties through heart of darkness. Um, and, you know, in today's marketplace, the script has to be flawless. It has to, has to grab you. It has to pull you in. Uh, your interest level just has to keep growing and growing, and then ultimately has to deliver you somewhere that exceeds your expectations. It's it's not an easy thing to do, uh, but the writers who can do it, 
uh, they are in high demand right now. Okay. Uh, what was the film you saw this year that you think one of, one of the films this year that you think best fulfills that function? That's a hard, you know, it's a, that's just a really hard question to answer. I mean, I, I really enjoyed Rogue One. I really enjoyed Moonlight. I really enjoyed everything in between. Um, you know, um, early on, like when I started teaching, uh, I couldn't watch a movie without deconstructing it while I was watching it and, you know, having a critical opinion and it ruined watching movies for me. So at some point I've learned to just go to movie. I just want to go to a movie as an audience member, not as a teacher, not as a writer. So I just want to experience the movie and not have to think about it. Like you're not taking your work home with you. Exactly. I mean, it literally got to the point where my friends and even my wife were saying, it's not all that fun to see movies with you. And it, <laughs> I got to the point where I realized it wasn't fun for me to see movies with me. So I've, I've had to turn that part off. I don't think anyone has ever said something that was so relatable to me. <laughs> oh, you can relate to this. <laughs> oh, I'm the worst. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So there you have it. That's five excellent interviews. I want to say a very special thank you to Sierra Nakovich who conducted them. She did an amazing job. She's definitely going to be back on ContraZoom. So uh, I hope you look forward to hearing more from her. And uh, and I apologize once again that our original conversation was lost to the ether. Uh, but I do look forward to bringing her back um, either way. Uh, and also a very special thank you to the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. Thank you for allowing uh, us to attend, for arranging these interviews to happen, um, and for just putting on a fantastic conference. Uh, I think you provide a really uh, valuable service. Make sure you go to liveinlimbo.com where you can check out the show notes. Um, follow me on Twitter at DGAPA. Check out Sierra's uh, writing about film uh, on Live in Limbo as well. Uh, you'll be hearing a lot more from her in the future. If you have any comments, things you want to talk about, feel free to send me an, in, uh, an email at dakota at liveinlimbo.com. Thank you so much for listening.